This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. More than 50 central banks around the world are looking at implementing digital currencies or what are called CBDCs, that is central bank digital currencies. What is that, you might ask? I thought we already had digital currencies. After all, cash only accounts for about 3% of all the rands in issue. The remaining 97% are entries on bank computers. So what is the big deal about Central Bank of China issuing a digital WAN or the South African Reserve Bank planning a digital RAND and how will that change our lives? Well, joining us to unpack this is Monica Singer, SA lead for blockchain company Consensus. Hi, Monica. Let's start with perhaps the most obvious question. If 97% of all RANDs in circulation are in digital form and only 3% are in the form of cash, why should the Reserve Bank want to introduce a digital RAND? Don't we have that already? First, thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Definitely, it has nothing to do with cash. Cash is a byproduct that the CBDC is going to replace or help replace. It doesn't mean that we won't have cash. It means that cash will be there, but people will have choices. So this is not about cash. This is about you asking me, do you want a faster horse? And I come in and I say, I'm going to give you a car. You cannot even begin to imagine what this car is going to do because you're so used to riding your horse. And therefore, this is how big the paradigm shift is going to be in the world economy. That's why we call it that money is being reimagined. Okay, so what are the advantages of central bank digital currencies or CBDCs? How is that going to change our lives for the better? Okay, the first one, most important one. For me, that's the one that is a game changer. At the moment when we created the capitalist system, and actually it started 500 years ago with the Medici's, you had to open a bank account because the bankers were the one keeping the ledger. Now everybody has to, if they want to do transactions without cash, you have to have a bank. And what happens is that then you have what is called counterparty risk against your commercial bank. If the bank goes under in developing countries, because we don't have deposit insurance, the chances are you will lose your deposits. And the regulators are going to try the best to ensure that the banks don't go under. And they're going to try to do the best to compensate some depositors. But the truth is that risk is on you, where you deposit your money, how you choose your bank, etc. CBDCs are a liability on the central bank. As we know, central banks are the lenders of last resort. As we know, anything issued by a central bank has got a lower risk than if it's issued by a commercial bank. So you just imagine that now, for the first time in the history of humankind, the central bank is going to issue a currency that is digital, that is instant, fast, it has no intermediaries, decentralized ledger, it's going to give wallets to all these people, it will enable financial inclusion, it will speed up the cross-border payments that we don't have at the moment, as you know, cross-border takes a long time with a lot of intermediaries, a lot of costs. It will reduce the costs. It will ensure interoperability with other coins. And therefore, it will change dramatically the face of commerce because you're now using the internet to record transaction of value, which until now, that was not possible. But since the issue, the, the idea that came in 2008 with the white paper creating Bitcoin, now we know that this is possible. And that's why this is a massive game changer. 
Okay, let's talk about some of the negatives of CBDCs, such as the ability of totalitarian governments to track all our spending. Do we really want the Reserve Bank or perhaps the government knowing where we spend all our money and what can we do to protect against this? So, of course, at the end of the day, you know, history repeats itself. And we know that if the technology is not there to serve its people, the people will have a choice. So just remember, this is going to be another currency that people can choose to use or not to use. It is in the best interest of the central bank to ensure that this currency is used. Because if it's not used, the central banks are going to lose their ability to set monetary policy and use it as a mechanism for financial stability. So that means that one of the things that you have to respect is privacy up to a certain amount. So, for example, if you study the paper called the Digital Dollar Project, which is the one that is the CBDC project for the U.S., uh, for the U.S. dollar, it says any transactions below $10,000 will be remain totally private and anonymous. Any uh, transaction above will have to be disclosed because that is to ensure, you know, know your client and anti-money laundering, blah, blah, blah. So that is what we are hoping that enlightened central banks will produce this new currency for the benefit of its people, not to track them, not to control them, not to spy on them, because at the end of the day, people then will say, you know what, I'm not going to use this currency. No matter that it's more secure than a commercial bank money, I'd rather go into crypto or into any other stable coins where I know that I can trust that they're not going to track my transactions. So to understand that it's going to be very important how the central banks that define their own central bank digital currencies decide on the implementation of this uh, currency for the benefit of its people. Okay, do you foresee a future where decentralized monies like Bitcoin will coexist with digital currencies issued by central banks? And will people be able to switch from one form of money into another in seconds? So let's just say you've got the digital rand that's issued by the, the Reserve Bank of South Africa. Would you be able to switch from that to, to Bitcoin or to Ethereum? Do you foresee a future like that? I mean, I know we're not there yet, but is that coming? So technologically, of course, it can be done. But the question is going to be, will the government allow this to happen? Do you understand that from a technology perspective, we are fully aware of what's possible. But now it's up to the politicians, the central banks, to decide what they want to do for their CBDCs. I personally hope that all the CBDCs at least should be interchangeable with each other. So I hope that the Bank of International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board, they all come together and set the standards that should be used for CBDC so that they can interoperate. At least that's the bare bones that should happen because we don't want to have, you know, a, a situation where, you know, like the, uh, the plugs, you know, the plugs are all different and they don't work whenever you travel. This should be the internet of value should be interoperable. It should be no wall gardens. It should be able to, with a touch of a button, you should be able to switch from one CBDC to the other, from one stable coin to any other currency. It could be a cryptocurrency, it could be a stable coin, it could be a CBDC. That is the future that we should be building for a society. And therefore, we should not be uh, worried about building all this centralization, it should be decentralized, single version of the truth, use the blockchain, 
use programmable money, use um, the abilities of the immutable ledger. All this incredible technology that we know that is being used by cryptocurrencies should be modeled and should be used for the benefit of its the citizens of the country that are going to use this. All right. You threw out a term there called programmable money. I think we better explain that. What, what do you mean by that? Is that money, for example, it's really certain conditions are built into the computer code where, let's say, it might expire if it's not used within a month or two, or like they've done in the Marshall Islands, which is in the in the Pacific Ocean, where they've introduced a central bank digital currency and they've programmed 4% inflation or 4% growth of money supply into their algorithm that runs that CBDC. Is this the kind of programmable money you're talking about? Of course, correct. But I want to give you a little bit of background as to where this term comes from. In 2014, Ethereum, the Internet of Value platform, was created. And with it, it was created with a concept of what's called smart contracts. Smart contracts is a program that says, if this happens, therefore that happens. So just when we talk about programmable money, it means that the digital currency will have this smart contract functionality where you can program things. Like, for example, if you're distributing your social grants every month, instead of getting all these people standing outside in a queue in the post office, you actually program that on certain dates, the money gets distributed real time into the wallets of all the people that qualify to to get a social grant. Um, for example, you could program taxes. Every time you go and do a transaction, the VAT will be paid automatically to the taxman. Uh, for example, if you want to uh, have privacy up to 10,000 rand, then you know that any transaction below 10,000 rand would be totally private and anonymous, etc., etc. Do you understand how many ideas you can program without having to phone anybody and to try to uh, negotiate that this transaction should have been treated in a different way. The program is autonomous, and once you define the program, it will react in the way that you have intended it to react. I think uh, South African Revenue Services will be quite interested to hear about that, the idea that VAT could be paid straight away into its bank account rather than having to do it once uh, every two months or whatever it is at the moment. I just want to touch on this thing that you you wrote a paper on CBDCs and you mentioned that the Reserve Bank will be able to distribute universal basic income and social grants on a real-time basis and everyone who's allocated wallets or bank accounts will receive that money. So this now ties into what we've been talking about, programmable money. Now, many people might not understand that this is already happening to some extent. For example, universal basic income in the United States during the, this year of the COVID lockdowns, the government was actually issuing checks of about $1,500 to everybody in the country. This seems to be a thing that is, that is coming. And we already have about 17 million people in South Africa that are receiving social grants every month. So this programmable money could be very easily adapted to fulfill that role where they, the, the social grants are issued into a wallet. Everybody in the country gets a wallet, and that's managed, by, let's say, by the Reserve Bank or maybe by the private sector. Have any of these details been worked out yet, or is this something still very much in the conceptual stage? Of course, consensus has got the right technology and can actually produce this technology overnight. That is not a problem. The problem is that you need a lot of education um, in central banks and citizens and, and actually 
We believe in the two-tier approach. We believe that the central bank issues the central bank digital currency, but the banks and other fintechs are the ones that really hold the account for the citizens on behalf of the central bank. But remember, that account is not like money that the banks will be able to use for their own businesses. That account will not be touched because that is just a record that the money belongs to the citizens and the event and, and is on escrow. And in the event of the commercial bank going under, that account doesn't get lost into the rest of the financial debacle that could be taking place in a specific bank. It also opens up to many fintechs to get involved in being the account holders on behalf of the central bank. The issue of a programmable money and all these ideas are only now coming to the fore because as you started your podcast by saying that there are many central banks doing this research because there are many things they need to take into account because some people have got the fear that central bank digital currency can become so popular that then people are going to say, why am I going to deposit money in a bank account, in a normal commercial bank? And that's why, for example, you have the Central Bank of Bahamas, it's called the SAN project. What they did is they said, your central bank digital currency cannot exceed a certain amount, and whatever you've got in that wallet, you won't earn interest. So that encourages people that if they want to hold CBDCs as a store of value, they won't be able to do it because it won't be a store of value. It will just be a medium of exchange and a unit of account, which is part of the definition of money. So all of this needs to be worked out, but it requires a lot of research because we, you know, we have a one, one chance in a lifetime to make such a difference to society. And therefore, uh, you know, like I heard someone in the Federal Reserve Bank in in U.S. saying, we don't need to be first, but you need, we need to be the, the best. The ones that issue this in the best possible technology and the best interest of not only our citizens, but the world economy. So that I want, uh, I hope that we're not going to rush this and we're going to apply our minds to do what is right. And finally, uh, what we've done at Consensus, we built a sandbox what is a sandbox? A sandbox is the actual technology where you can actually come and test it. So we give you access through the internet, and then you, the central bank, starts issuing, selling, buying, minting, burning, doing whatever you want, and you test the technology. So the technology is really the last of the worries. The main thing is the the the, the infrastructure, the thinking of that's going to go into a, allowing. Um, and what programmability and, you know, who's going to have access and is it two-tier or is it token, is it account-based? There's so many questions. The governance, who's going to keep the track, uh, the, the shared version of the truth? There's so many questions that someone, the central banks need, need to answer before they even think about the actual technology. I think the technology is always the last of the worries and reminds me, actually, when I built straight, when I was building Stripe, which was, you know, bringing digital uh, transformation to the financial market, the last of my worries was the technology. It was more about the politics and the education of the market to help them transform from using share certificates and checks to totally electronic. That took so much energy that the, the technology really was the easy part. 
Right, and I think people who you've just introduced an, an, another thing there, straight. Of course, you used to run straight, which is the electronic settlement system for the the stock exchange or the financial markets generally. And one of the targets that you had then, if I'm not mistaken, was to move to what you call T plus zero. In other words, you wanted real time settlement. But in actual fact, I think the the closest you got was T plus three or something like that. So you would settle. Um, a shared transaction within three days of the the transaction actually taking place. So moving to real-time settlement, this is something that's obviously very close to you because you're now there. You really are knocking on the doorstep. The technology is available, and you already see with Bitcoin and with so many of these other uh, types of cryptocurrencies that settlement is happening in seconds, right? Is this the kind of fulfillment of what you were trying to achieve at Straight and you're now applying it in a, a different sphere? A hundred percent. You know, if I tell you the day I read Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper on Bitcoin, I started crying because that paper explains what I could not achieve while running straight. So I wanted to achieve peer-to-peer, real-time settlement, that the investors should be able to have their statements real-time, that the issuer would know real-time who's buying, who's selling. I wanted them. I wanted the market to have this ledger that didn't need reconciliations where corporate actions, dividends, and interest were paid real-time without having to employ hundreds of people to try to reconcile and distribute the uh, dividends, etc. All of that, even with the best of intentions, we couldn't achieve. Why? Because the thinking that created straight was centralization and reliance on intermediaries. Satoshi says, you decentralize, you don't have intermediaries, you build a a computer system that nobody can commit fraud or amend, it's immutable, and you put this cryptography that prevents anybody from cheating. And when I read that paper, I said, that's it. That is the answer that I've been looking for. Do you understand that what Satoshi said is totally a paradigm shift to what we have around the world today? So. The reality is that this is a complete paradigm shift where you're going into the internet. Remember, straight and all the financial markets in the world do not use the internet. They use mainframes, they use swift messages, and therefore it's very centralized. And therefore it's the plumbing. It's very expensive. It can never reduce to T plus zero because of all the people that are involved. And therefore this new paradigm that we have seen now in terms of the cryptocurrency exchanges that they're doing with cryptocurrencies, we know it can be done with any item in the capital markets, anything, and other industries, of course. You know, of course, this technology now, we know we can use it for many other industries like supply chain, trade finance, uh, so many. So do you understand that this is truly, for me, is the, the dream that I always had, but I didn't know how to do it. And Satoshi worked it out. So now. I love being part of this energy where maybe this time we'll get it right. And the most important thing, truly, that we mustn't forget, this is the first time in history that we can bring all the people we left behind. You know, the financial inclusion conversation. You know, there's over a billion people in the world that never had access to any financial product because, as we know, it's very expensive to be part of open an account and a bank and whatever. So for the first time, we've got a technology that says, you know what? We can actually reach even people that are illiterate, people that have no income. We can reach them in very simple technologies and enable them to grow their wealth um, by offering this type of technologies, you know, and opening up the world to them. The final thing I want to say is that nobody can imagine 
the amount of new products and services that will come about from this technology. This is just the beginning where we just know how to transform what we know into something new. But out of the new, there's going to be an implosion of new products and services by many, many entities that are going to be able to say, and what about this and what about that? So it's a very exciting time to be alive and, and, and for me to be part of consensus that is making this happen around the world. The question that does come up from what you've just mentioned there is we talk about financial inclusion, and yes, it, it's something that has been spoken about for decades, and we've never quite arrived there. And here we have a technology that can actually deliver it in a very, very short space of time. You can basically create a wallet. The Reserve Bank can create a wallet for everybody in the country. But the question is then, what do you put in that wallet? If people are poor, they remain poor, they've got nothing to put in that wallet unless the government's going to give them something in the form of a social grant and so on. How then does the inclusion move to the next step? Excellent point. I'll give you an example. First of all, this wallet, there's a wallet that we have. It's called MetaMask. You can download it. I encourage you to use it and start playing with it because that's a bank in your hand. You don't need a bank. You will have your own bank in your hand. But it's at the moment, the user experience is a little bit sophisticated and therefore it's not for everybody. To answer your question. So imagine that now you want to include people. You don't need to have, let's say, a, a sophisticated wallet. You can have even a little card that has a QR code. And the QR code enables you, just imagine that you're now driving and you have this card and you see a beggar in the street and you don't want to uh, give them cash because cash might have COVID. So you just take your card and your card just taps into their card and there's a transfer that you can enable. You can program this to transfer, let's say, donations. But also just remember that as these CBDCs are issued, we can always encourage that there's some money that is put into this uh, CBDCs for people that never had uh, any, uh, any money. And remember that we make it so cheap that the money that gets put into the wallet is not taken out by the cost of uh, bank charges, for example. Uh, I've even read papers where the regulators are saying CBDCs up uh, below a certain balance should not have to pay for any bank charges. Can you see that we are already creating this concept? Then what will happen slowly but surely, there's going to be many other uh, coins. For example, as you know, Facebook is about to issue a stable coin, a private stable coin called DM. And they are saying that they've got 2.3 billion people that are using Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. All these people will be able to get the benefit of this coin, which is going to start with rewards. You know, like the more you use, let's say, WhatsApp or Facebook, you're going to get points. You know, it's like, you know, your discovery vitality points. You get points and the points get converted into cash. And that's one option. The other option, which is fascinating, which is a long story, not for today's uh, podcast, which is the concept of self-sovereign identity, which enables each human being to have control over their own data. That data, when you share it, you share it peer to peer. That means if you want to share something and you can actually sell your data, your personal data will be able to be sold. And therefore, instead of sharing it via Facebook and Facebook selling your data, you're going to sell it yourself. And therefore, that's going to be a great source of income for even people that have nothing because it's data. And with this data, the other thing that is unbelievable is that people will be able to assess whether or not you're a good credit risk. And therefore, there's already uh, in the decentralized finance world algorithms that can work out if 
and what, um, how much money can you afford in terms of asking for loans without the loan loan provider having a natural bias because maybe you are, um, you know, someone that gets discriminated and these algorithms don't discriminate. They're very uh, much rational. So can you see that there are so many possibilities as to how we can bring people with us, micro loans, micro transactions without any costs, uh, accessibility, uh, instant payments, um, secure. So I totally believe that this is just the very beginning. And the final thing I have to give you an example. I am old enough to remember when the internet started. If you would have said to me that in 1994, 95, that one day I was going to have an app called WhatsApp that I could touch a button and speak to anybody in the world for free, I would have said, no, you're drinking something. Because I don't know if you remember how difficult it was to even place an international call in 1994. And now look at the miracle of this simple app. And this is what I'm saying. This is just the beginning of innovation that is going to take place in the Internet of Value. It's like uh, going back to the 1980s and somebody explaining to you, you know, in a few decades from now, you're going to be using this device, which will be allow you to make a phone call, uh, watch a movie, access your bank account. And as you say, talk to anybody in the world. It's absolutely mind-blowing to, to go back and just realize how far this technology has come. But I think the point that you're making is that this is really where we are right now. We're at 1995 in terms of blockchain development, right? Yeah. Hundred percent, and and just remember when the internet started, everybody was saying, oh, "I'm not going to touch it because it's for prostitution and for gambling and for bad people." Blah blah blah. Now, who can live today without the internet? Yes, there's good and bad, but who can live without the internet? And the same narrative we're hearing today. You know, what is the first thing you hear? No, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Bitcoin is for criminals. It's all rubbish. Do you understand? This is just because people don't want to adapt to the fact that disruption is coming. Monica Singer, we're going to leave it there. I do want to get you back to talk about this fascinating concept of the sovereign individual and who's going to own your data and your profile and your identity, which is really being hoovered up for free by the likes of Google and Facebook at the moment. And I think in the very near future, there's going to be a dramatic change in that. And I really do want to talk to you in some depth about that subject. Awesome. I would love that. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. That was Monica Singer, who is the South Africa lead for blockchain company Consensus. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.